All right. So Philippians 1. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 8. Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Thank you for grace. Thank you, Father, that the gospel is a message of grace. It's not a message about how good I need to be in order for your approval, in order for my spouse's approval, in order for my kids' approval, in order for my friends' approval, my coworkers, my boss. It's a message about your effective grace pouring into our hearts and changing us. And it should have a peculiar sweetness to us. A, a, as Alan quoted earlier, a piercing sweetness. A sense that unsettles us in the midst of our relationship, but that is so rich and so full of joy that we can't help but come back to its fountain day after day. Father, show us the riches. Show us the riches of joyful relationships in the seed of the gospel this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. A uh, few years ago, actually probably several years ago, there was a popular song came out by Tracy Lawrence. You may have heard it. It's called, um, You'll Find Out Who Your Friends Are. And uh, the the song sort of, you know, pictures when the chips are down, when your truck runs into a ditch and, um, you know, things go bad, you slip off that rock, you find out who your true friends are. You know, when you're in the midst of suffering, your true friends are the ones who, who come to rescue. And I can't help that he, he cast that and he wrote that song and it gained popularity at a particular time, not when genuine friendship was the norm, but when it was not, when... When, when in our culture, we've made a shift away from genuine fr- friendships to more surface-level friendships, right? I mean, we have lots of, we have hundreds of friends on Facebook, but how many are, are genuine friends? How many true, genuine relationships do we have? There's a change, there's, there's a, a change in the nature of relationships within our culture. You see this in the, uh, in the nature of marriage rates. Um, Match.com did a study recently and found that the average number of men and women who get married has has increased, or or the age at which they get married. In 1970, that average age was about 21. 
Um, and in 2017, that average age was 29. And so it's, it's changing. It's changing. Young folks are waiting later to get married if they marry at all. Um, citing reasons for, well, marriage is a big commitment. Um, I need to have things more together in my life before I, before I dive into that boat. Um, and they also legitimately cite uh, fear of divorce as a key. Uh, many, many experiencing either themselves or with friends um, the, the damage that divorce has done. They say, I, I, I fear that. I, I fear that. I have a legitimate fear of that. But what's interesting is Match.com found that although this, re- this trend is changing, folks were waiting later and later in life to get married, to dive into that type of a, of a, of a commitment, the vast majority of them still cited a desire for serious relationship, still want a serious relationship. And in the midst of their relationships, you can see that this is the truth. Because in our culture, there's been a rise in cohabitation, right? As what was used to be called friends with benefits or hooking up, you know, in a, in a sense. There's still the desire for joining together and having all the benefits that marriage has without that signing on the dotted line and commitment. As if not building that strong relationship or attempting to build the strong relationship somehow allows you to skirt the damage that the separation would, would cause. Um, but we, we see this. There is in our, in, our, in our culture still a deep desire for strong relationships, a desire for that. But it seems that they are, they're out of reach. They're, they're out of reach. We all want long-lasting relationships, but they seem to be slightly out of reach. They're out there. We hear about them. We see them in TV shows. We go, yeah, that's the kind of relationship I want. But we look at our own life and we go, why do I struggle with that? People don't have those types of, of relationships. We seem to be unable to, to procure them. But doesn't seem to be that way with Paul. Well, you read Paul's relationship with, his, with the Philippians and how he phrases it. The Philippians were, were people that Paul had a tightly knit bond with. And they were people who, who, who came to his rescue. I mean, in a, in a sense. You know, Paul, remember Paul's, Paul's in prison? He's in prison in Rome. He's shackled to a guard under house arrest. He's near his execution. And Epaphroditus shows up, a representative from the, the Philippians. And Paul's like, oh, thank you. Thank you. This, the church has remembered me. They're here. He's grateful for that. In the midst of Paul's struggle, in the midst of, uh, uh, of Paul's suffering for the gospel, this church shows up to be with him. So the question is, as we read this with Paul, we have to ask, Paul, what's the stream that fuels your relationship with, this, with the Philippians? What's the undergirding, what's the foundation that strengthens this relationship? Why is the relational bond here so strong when, honestly, we could give every logical reason why this should be weak, if existent at all, right? This isn't family. This isn't a family tie that binds here. This isn't a, well, we, we played on the same sport team together. We went to the same high school together. We had cultural influences that we share in common. If anything, the, the church at Philippi and Paul have so drastically different backgrounds that they share nothing in common, right? Paul was a Pharisee. He, he, was, he was a Pharisee. He was against Gentiles. Right? He was against anybody that would have anything to do with Christ. And yet, and yet God knocks him off his horse, changes his, changes his heart. Look at the church at Philippi. I mean, here is a group of predominantly Gentile Christians that have come together under the gospel. 
So there's nothing that they really have in common except the gospel itself. So what's the stream that fuels Paul's relationship with the Philippians? I want to do two things this morning. I want to look at the depths of Paul's love for the Philippians because we have to feel that. We have to see it. We have to feel it because it's so easy for us to read this and in Paul's own way of kind of writing, it's easy for us to go, well, there's a lot there. There's a lot of emotion, a lot of tenderness there that he expresses. That's good. Let's get on to something else. But there's a lot here that's worth our examining and looking at and feeling that, that the depth of that relationship that Paul has for the Philippians. Um, and then I want to give three reasons for why we should participate in the gospel together. So that's what I goal. That's my goal. That's what I want to do. So first, the depth of Paul's love for the Philippians. Paul starts off in verse 3. And he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. He gives thanks. He gives an emotional expression for a, for a need met. With our little kids, we're, we're trying to teach them about the importance of being thankful. You know, okay, I, Daddy hands you a Pop-Tart. What do you say? Thank you, Daddy. You're welcome. You're welcome. No, you're welcome is what I say. You say a thank you. Okay, let's try it again. Trying to teach them. When you get something, when you ask for something, when a need is met, you say thank you. You say thank you. And Paul was thankful. But what's interesting is Paul was not just thankful for the Philippians. He's thankful for all the churches. Listen to these opening sentences in in his letter to the other churches. Colossians 1, 3 through 4. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. 1 Thessalonians 1, Two, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 5. And if there was ever a messed up church that had moral problems, it was Corinthians. And yet Paul says this of them. He says, first, he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him. Paul to the church at Romans. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. And to the Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 15 and 16. It says before this, basically, because you bear the evidence of God's saving grace, quote, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Paul was deeply, deeply thankful for the churches and he's thankful for all of them. He doesn't just highlight a bunch of people and he go, okay, well, I'm thankful for you. Thank for you. You're worthless. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You've got a lot of work going on. You know, he says, I'm thankful for you all. I'm thankful for you all. And when you read these letters, you come away going, man, these churches had some problems. They had moral issues. They had, every single one of them had unity issues. Paul addresses unity issues in the church at Philippi later on. They have their problems. And Paul says, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for you. I'm so thankful. So why was he thankful? Let's look at three elements of Paul's thankfulness. One, he says, still in verse 3, I thank who? Who does Paul thank? He says, I thank my God. I thank my God. Paul's thanks for the Philippians overflowed to praise to God. Thus, Paul saw God as the reason behind any blessing in his life. He didn't write to the Philippians and say, I'm thankful for you because of this. 
because of, because of these things that you have done, as if they're the source of blessing. Paul sees any, any grace that he gets from these churches. And he goes, that's from God. God is the source of any blessing. And Paul served a big God, one who was the source of any good thing that Paul encountered. And he was quick to give honor and praise to God. We think about it, what was the validation of Paul's ministry? Paul didn't go out with this, this sort of marketing plan and go, okay, I'm going to try and sell this bill of goods to people and they're going to purchase it and I'm going to reap some benefit from it. He went out with a message of weakness. He went out with a, a message that had no human power in it at all that required the divine power of God to change people's hearts. Right? It was foolishness to those who were perishing. To the Gentiles, it was foolishness. To the Jews, it was weakness. The validation of Paul's ministry that there was anything legitimate about it was that anyone believed his message and that they continued believing after he left. And his boast was in the sovereign work of God to change the hearts of people through that very message. You get a sense of this when Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. He says, For who is our hope of glory, our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord at His coming? For you are our glory and our joy. And in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. What is life to Paul in this life? It's seeing the gospel come to bear in people's lives and going, there's the power of God displayed. Not for my glory. I'm just the conduit of it. I just speak. And God causes life to grow. You are our glory. You are our joy. Because you're the evidence of the effective work of God and the effective work of His grace. So Paul's thanks for the Philippians overflowed to God. God, God was the source of Paul's hope of Paul's thanksgiving. Secondly, his thanksgiving was characterized by what? It's characterized by joy. Verse 4. He says, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Structurally, verse 3 and 4, there's not a lot that's different there other than the fact that that word joy is included. How were his prayers characterized? What, what, what shrouded those or what, in, what, what encircled those? They were joyful prayers. What a, what a relief. Here he is, he's in prison, he's shackled to a guard. Very little privacy, very little earthly comforts. There are many that are, as he writes later in Philippians, there are many that are proclaiming Christ for selfish gain. But Paul has joy in this faithful group of, of Christians. Maybe, we don't know, maybe right then and there, he wasn't experiencing a lot of Success, although he does talk about the, some of the guards coming to faith in Christ, but he's not exactly planning a church there. But he hears of the, the Philippians. The Philippians are coming to mind because they've brought this gift to him, and he's thankful for them. He's thankful for them. He's joyfully thankful. There's a lot of kinds of thankfulness, right? You can be thankful for certain things that, and it not necessarily be joyful. I mean, this past week, uh, Alan and I were, were working on a job, and I'm, uh, we're up on a roof working, and um, Alan set a rafter up, and it, I wasn't paying attention. It slipped, and it hit me in the head. Um, but I was so thankful that it didn't knock me out and knock me off the roof. 
You know, I was thankful for that. It wasn't exactly a joyful thankful. I was more of a, whew, dodged a bullet on that one. Now, we can be thankful in different ways, but a joyful thanks is unique. A joyful thanks is unique. And that's how Paul characterized his thankfulness for, for, the, uh, for the Philippians. So I, I thank my God in joy for you. And their participation, and, so, and then thirdly, he thanks his, his thankfulness, or he's thankful because of their participation in the gospel. Their participation in the gospel is what provides the occurrence for Paul to give thanks. Look at verse 5. He says, I thank my God in joy for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. What was the need that was met for Paul? Their participation in the gospel. That's what gives rise to his thankfulness. So I want to camp out here for a second because, it's, again, it's, it's easy for us to read things in Scripture and to just kind of gloss over it and, and miss some of, the, some of the depth that's there. So what does Paul mean when he, def- when he says participation in the gospel? What, is, what does he mean? Look over at uh, Philippians 4, verse 15. The same word or the same, same literary structure is used here in, in 4.15. It's helpful for us. It says, You yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me, or you, your translation may say participated with me, in the same manner, in the, same, in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. Verse 16, for not even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So in the immediate context of the letter, the gift that the Philippians sent, their financial gift is the immediate cause of Paul's remembrance of their participation in the gospel. So you sent Epaphrodus with a gift for me. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful. But we have to raise the question, is it only their financial support? Is Paul sitting in prison just kind of going, man, I just, I'm out of money, I got nothing, and they send a gift. And he's like, thanks, thanks for the money, I'm good. Yeah, that's what I need. Because oftentimes I think when we send money maybe to missionaries, we send it to that, that's as far as it goes. We sent the money and that's it. That, that's all. And that's not it at all. Look at verses 4, 10 through, through 18. In the context of this, Paul says, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly, not uh, that now at the last you've received, I've, you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you lacked opportunity. So you're concerned, but you lacked opportunity to show it. Now you have. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. And in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And then the famous verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves know also, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself. Here's the key. 
but I seek the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and, I, and have an abundance. I am amply supplied. But having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Do you see that? For Paul, it's not the gift that matters. It doesn't tell us the amount. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what that looked like. For Paul, it's the complete expression of the Philippians' love for him. That's what mattered. That's what mattered. There's a, there's a similar occurrence, I, I think, in the Old Testament where you see a similar situation play out, maybe in a little bit more of a dramatic scene. If you, you maybe remember back in the Old Testament, David, at one point, he's, he's removed from the, from the palace, and uh, he's, he's sitting there, and he's, he's longing for a drink of water from the well in the palace. And he, he, he happens to just voice this, man, I just, I'm thirsty and parched. I would love to have a drink of water from this from this well. Something about it, I don't know, you know, but he, he remembered that. I would love to have that. And his, his mighty men that are around him, these are sort of his like uh, special forces team. He's got a strong brotherly bond with these guys. They hear it and they, they get together and they go, hey, let's go get him a drink of water, you know. And th- I mean, this would make an awesome, just an awesome movie. You know, these guys just, they dress up in arms and they storm the palace and, you know, they're cutting their way through. One of the guys runs in maybe with a cup or something, dips in the water and they could just see him in the movie charging out with this, you know, cup of water, you know, for, for David. And uh, they, they leave, they get the, the drink of water and they come back. I mean, they just fought through all these people to get, get a cup of water. And David, he's so moved by this. He takes that cup of water and he goes, I'm not worthy. And he pours it out. He pours it out. What does it say? Paul pours this out as a drink offering to God, effectively telling his friends their deep love for him was far more satisfying than any well. It's not about the water. You just showed me how much you loved me, and that to me is more satisfying than any water. I'll pour this out because that's more satisfying. Paul saw that in the gospel. He said, your expression of love for me, that is immensely, immensely satisfying. So their participation in the gospel was not just their financial giving, but it was their full expression of love and saying, hey, we're with you. We're with you, Paul, in your suffering. So two things in here that's helpful to define. One, the gospel. Paul says your participation in the gospel is not just the message, not just the message, but the movement of God throughout history that is perpetuated by God's instruments, by God's human spokespersons. It's as if God is saying, I'm going to redeem a people for myself from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. It's in Revelation. can't remember exactly where, but it's there. And they shall receive this blessing through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Now go and be conduits of my message to those people. That's the grace that God showed Paul. And Paul experienced that in a, in a radical way on his road to Damascus. And his life was forever changed, was forever altered. So much so that he can say later in Philippians 3, 7, I count all things, all my religious advancements, all my moral achievements as rubbish. It's a graphic word he used there. as a tower of fecal matter. I count them as that compared to the surpassing greatness of 
intimately knowing Christ. That's the gospel for Paul. It wasn't just a message on a track they can hand out. It was his life. So when he says gospel, that's what he's got behind it. And he says your partnership, your participation. The Greek word there is koinonia. Participation, fellowship, partnership. Think of it this way, that Paul had brought the news of the gospel to Philippi. Acts 16, Alan, Alan preached on that last week as an intro to, to Philippians. Brought the news of the gospel to, to Philippi. People believed. Right? Preached Lydia, businesswoman from, from Thyatira. Uh, eyes were open, she believes. The, the jailer, you know, this, this, this cruel jailer who binds Paul and the others, he comes to faith. Comes to faith. The, 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 the slave girl, it's not specifically said she comes to faith, but I think when you read in the context and you look at other situations in Scripture with a similar demon possession, there's a draw for that person afterwards towards the gospel. It's an amazing story of God's grace. People believed. They instantly became partakers of God's grace, His effective saving grace. And since then, there's the first day become partakers of the gospel with me since the first day, since the first day I stepped into your city, preached the gospel, and you believed. Been participating in that same work. And since then, uh, um, you participated in that same work, and you're being conduits of God's saving grace and love, even to me. Even to me. Even now, as you've grown in the grace and knowledge of Christ, even if you've been counted blessed to experience suffering, which Paul talks about later, in the letter, even now you're sending a gift to me. Even now you're fully expressing your love for me and your participation in the gospel. We have fellowship here because of our history together in the gospel, in God's, in God's miraculous, divine, sovereign grace. The immediate evidence of their partnership, their fellowship, their koinonia was their sacrificial gift to him. So what is participation in the gospel? It's seeing what God is doing in the world to glorify, him, to glorify himself and saying, yes, that's what I want my life to be about. God is worthy of my life, so I want to be about his business. This is why we, this is, this is the, the undergirding steel, if you will, behind why we partner with, with missionaries like the Boyers and like Doug. It's not just so we can say, okay, well, we've done this as part of being a church. We're, a, we're more of a church now because we have missionaries that we're connected to. No, it's because we have a heart for the gospel and to see God's glory proclaimed throughout the earth. We want to be engaged in it. We can't be over there, but we can connect with people. We can have fellowship with people. We have partnership with people who say, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. And so we stay connected with them. Alan and I have expressed a desire that we want to do a better job as a as a church and as elders, of staying connected with our missionaries. Not just saying, hey, we're going to send you dollars, but we actually want to pour into your life. Participation in the gospel, it's not an accessory to our lives like an extracurricular activity. It is our life. It's the, the immensely it is our life and it is, it is immensely satisfying to really to the point that it should baffle others who see us. You look at Paul, Paul later, he, he, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
really, Paul, you'd be content to die rather than stay here? That's gain? I mean, it doesn't matter to you whether somebody's preaching Christ from an honorable stance or from false pretense. As long as Christ is exalted, man, you put a lot of trust in God to carry out his message. What about your friends? What about, about good food? What about vacations? What about memories? What about video games? What about you, you list all the other earthly comforts? Paul says these are mere echoes of the joy I have in Jesus. I can't wait for the shadow to become the reality. So let me ask you this. How would you characterize your relationships with people? Do you characterize them by a deep joy and thanksgiving in, in your participation in the gospel together? Or would you characterize them by grumbling and complaining? Is it characterized by grace in your relationships or by rights? This person doesn't really meet my expectations. Not really happy about this, wish this would change. Do you see God's sovereign hand in all of your circumstances and all of your relationships and saying, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for these relationships, even the difficult ones that I have. Or do you let the circumstances control those, control those relationships? That the circumstances become bigger than the God who actually created them. How do you characterize your relationships? So Paul had a deep love for the Christians that was rooted in their participation in the gospel together. Let me give three reasons why we should participate in the gospel together. Because Paul gives them. Paul gives, gives them. Back in Philippians 1. Why should we participate in the gospel together? At least three. Verse 6. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will bring it, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul really had two days on his calendar, today and then the day when Christ returned. Those two days characterize everything that he did. When he saw God doing something, when he saw things happening, he looked forward to the day of Christ's return. He goes, what does this mean for that day? What does this mean for that day? Paul had rich motive for his confidence or his motive in the gospel work. He says later in, in chapter 3, here's a, here's a little window into, into Paul's heart. What got him through things? He says, chapter 3, verse 8, more than that, more than, more than, this is right after he says, whatever things were gained to me, I count those as loss compared uh, for the sake of Christ. More than that, I call, count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. 
knowing Jesus in a, not in a, just in a theological, conceptual way, but in a real, personal, present way, that was of supreme value to Paul. He says nothing else can compare to that. And his, was, his desire was that the Philippians would lay hold of that same prize and would follow his example. Just down that, that same section, he says in verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example and, of those, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Paul had immense confidence in God to do what he had promised. Because when you look at this in Paul's charge to the Philippians, he says, here's my heart, I want you to have the same thing. That, that's huge. That requires a deep dependence in God. Because Paul's, he's 300 miles away. He's locked in a prison in Rome. He can in, not ensure the continuance of the Philippians and their faith. He has no power in, in and of himself to do it. Paul had an amazing confidence in the sovereignty of God. He's like David who had many opportunities for loneliness, many opportunities for self-doubt, many opportunities and occurrences of suffering. And yet as David had a heart that, that matched God's heart, David could say, the Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Psalm 138.8. Paul was like Isaiah who in his day saw the justice of God being merited out amongst the Israelites as, as, as Jerusalem crumbles, as the northern and southern kingdoms were being torn apart by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And Isaiah has to rest heavily, heavily on God's hand to complete his work. And he says in Isaiah 64, 8, he says, We are the clay, you are the potter. And all of us are the work of your hand. Deep, deep dependence in the sovereignty of God. And Paul's partnership with the Philippians was, a, was rested heavily on that work of grace from the beginning. Because as I said earlier, it's the, uh, because of the evidence of grace, only because of the evidence of grace in their lives, that they're continuing in their participation in the gospel with Paul that he would have any confidence that God would continue and finish what he started. But this work of grace requires involvement on their part. God doesn't reach down with his little magic wand and go, poof, 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 poof. There's involvement that has to take place. When we see what God is doing in the world and we affirm that it's the highest good, you see, that's the highest good for us to be involved in. It should hit us like a freight train. It really should because it, should st it stands in such stark contrast and such, such stark opposition to everything we've been doing previously. Think of this. If you're standing on a ladder and that ladder is leaned up against a wall, you've climbed up this ladder, ladder of, of whatever, personal achievement, personal ad advancement, power, materialism, you're leaning up against that ladder and you're climbing up and climbing up and suddenly you look down and you realize... This wall is crumbling because God says in the, in the day of judgment, any of those walls are going to just pass away in the sweep of fire. That wall's crumbling. What does it require of you? It requires you get all down off that ladder and that you move that ladder and you put it up against the wall that will stand. The shed blood of Christ. That's huge. That is huge. The gospel affects everything. It changes everything. 
That's what Paul can say in the next chapter, Philippians 2.13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So do you have this kind of dependence on God? Do you have Paul's type of dependence on God to fashion your heart like Christ? You following Him in obedience daily? How is your confidence in the Lord? Do you believe in a God who can do that? Who can bring you to completion? Because you may be at a point in your life where you're just going, Lord, where are you? I'm struggling. I'm struggling in the sin. I've got these circumstances that are happening to me that are just crushing me. Know that God is able to bring you to completion. That in the crucible of suffering, the crucible of struggle, that is where faith is forged. That is where God demonstrates His grace. Paul knew that. (coughs) Secondly, so we participate in the gospel because we have confidence that God will finish what he starts, namely to make us like Jesus. Secondly, we participate in the gospel together. Participation in the gospel together produces the steel of deep emotional ties that strengthen us in the midst of suffering. And such emotional ties, such ties are right and proper and satisfying. Paul says in verse 7, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers of grace with me. Paul saw his life as a work of God's grace, and he willingly endured immense suffering because of the value he placed on Jesus. What got him through that? What got him through the suffering? One, the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. And two, his confidence in God to complete his work as evidence through the changed, the lives that were changed. People like the Philippians. As I preached a message to you, you believed, and I'm seeing God change you. And I'm getting to experience that and being the beneficiaries of that grace as our relationship continues. That put spiritual rebar in Paul's spine during his life of suffering. See, the Philippians stuck by Paul even when he was locked up for preaching the gospel. When it became not only socially unacceptable, but culturally abhorrent. Not unlike our own days, is moving. There are stories told of, of POWs who endure torture for years before they're rescued or released. When they, when they come home, they're interviewed, ask, what got you through it? What got you through all of that? And oftentimes they cite their longing to see a loved one, maybe a spouse, a parent, a child. Gospel relationships give us so much stronger bond than any horizontal relationships, anything based on earthly blood, family ties, anything else earthly that we would have in common. When the gospel is at the center of our relationships, the depth of the relationship changes and we'll endure suffering together. Our friendships won't be fickle. We won't abandon each other in times of need. A loss of a child, maybe making a poor decision, stuck in some sin, terminal illness, 
The temptation in those times is to go, I don't want to get your mess on me. That's what the world will say. It's in the midst of those times that we, that, that we should rush to each other, strengthen each other. To say, I'm here for you because I have confidence in what God is doing and I want to be part of it. The gospel calls us to fellowship in our work together, not merely in tolerance for one another. Not merely just to be satisfied with, well, I'll just tolerate you. You're a little weird, a little different than me. But we got this Jesus thing going, and so you sit over there, I'm going to sit over there. No, it's to have fellowship together as we, as we partner in the gospel. And the fruit of that is deep joy and satisfaction in such relationships, and they're right and they're good. Those, such, those are relationships that we were designed for. Remember what did God tell Adam and Eve? He told, he told Adam, it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be alone. We were designed for relationships and relationships that were deeper and more meaningful than just horizontal, earthly things that we share in common with the grace of God that we share in Christ. So look around at your relationships. Is the gospel at the, at the center of your heart for your love for people or something else? What's at, what's at the heart to the root of your love for, for other people in your life? Is it the gospel or is it something else? And thirdly, our participation in the gospel makes us conduits of Christ's love for others. Verse 8, Paul says, For God is my witness, how I long for you with the affections of Christ Jesus. This is an intense statement. It it's really is an intense statement. He says, My affections for you are the affections of are Christ's affections for you. My affections for you are the affections of the divine Son of God. That's huge. That's, that's big. That's a big statement. And he calls God to the witness stand to testify of that. That's a bold statement. He says, the source of my love is Christ's very love for me. That's what Paul is saying. But what was Paul's love? What, what was that? How, does, how do we capture that? How do we picture that? Paul says, Paul's love is the, it's the tangible expression of Christ's love for others. He is, is where he writes elsewhere, filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. What were lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Was there something deficient about his suffering? No. What was lacking was a tangible expression of it. Paul, Peter, Lydia, disciples, Philip, all of these in Christians are the tangible expression of Christ's love for people. You have an example of this later. Epaphroditus, perfect example. He was one who would complete what was lacking in the Philippian service to Paul. What was lacking? Was there not enough money in the basket that they sent? No. What was lacking was the expression of their love for him. Seeing him in person, giving him their gift, being able to complete that expression of love. Not everybody could go to Paul, go see Paul in Rome. It was a long way away. It was a dangerous journey. Not everybody in the church could leave and go. So they sent a representative. They sent Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus took the journey. He came close to death, Paul says later on, for the advancement of the gospel. He was their representative. God had so worked. Well, he was he was their representative. He was completing what was lacking in their expression. He was the tangible expression of their love for Paul. 
God is so worked that we are the tangible expressions of his love for others. And that's an awesome calling. That is an awesome calling. There's no better thing to give our lives to than that right there. So in closing, deep, meaningful relationships for which we can be immensely thankful and joyful are the fruit of sacrificial participation in the gospel. And the root of such a life is a heart tuned to the glory of God. God, is, God was the source of Paul's relationships, not the Philippians themselves. I hope you see that. Paul didn't look at the Philippians and go, you're the source of my joy. So no, God is the source of my joy, and you're, the, you're, you're how I get to experience that. Oftentimes we seek the fruit for the sake of the fruit alone. We want the relationship for the relationship alone. And we should really seek the root, the one who designed relationships. And this is faith. It's pursuing what we, what we can't see, God's glory through his love for us in Jesus, and gaining as a result what we, what we need, relational fulfillment. It's not wrong to want relational fulfillment. But when we make that the goal, it becomes an unsatisfying and ultimately a damning idol. Participation in the gospel puts God's grace at the center of our lives, and relational fulfillment is a fruit of that seed, not the source of it. So what's the source of your relationships? Do you lack a deep, abiding joy in your relationships with others? Why? Why? Perhaps it's distractions. Are there distractions in your life? Distractions in what you've been giving your life towards? Is your life more about you and your accomplishments and your, your goals than God, glorifying God through participation in what He's been doing throughout history? Is it, has been the popular mantra these days, is your life more about you being you or about God being God and you just being awed in the, in the opportunity to be involved in what He's doing? saying, yes, I'll give my life to that. You're being distracted by something that is of lesser value and of lesser glory than what God is doing. Perhaps you prefer the ease of relationships with people that look like you. It's those, those are easy relationships, but oftentimes those are shallow relationships. Those are shallow relationships. And the gospel's at the heart of our relationships. It gives us a deeper deeper bond than anything else that we can fashion in ourselves just because someone shares similar commonalities with us. Do you fear the cost of commitment? Do you fear the cost of relational commitment? You, you want the benefit of a relationship, but the commitment is, I don't really know that I want to invest in that. It's easy to keep people at an at a arm's length. Length. When we pull them in close, it can be a cost to us. Do you weigh that cost? Do you know that success is not in your cards? Relational success with people is not in your cards. Paul knew that. He rested heavily on God for, for, for a God-glorifying definition of success in his relationship with others. If we're honest, it takes a lot of faith and a lot of faith in a big God to have gospel-intentional relationships. 
Do you trust him to complete what he started in you? If he's brought the gospel into your heart, do you trust him to complete what what he started in you? You commit to live each day with the determination to see his glory and engage in his work. Not just, well, I'm just going to be about this here and there, but to wake up each morning and go, Lord, show me your glory. May I be gripped by it today because I'm going to give a a day of my life for something. I want it to be about your work. May my job, may my family, may my hobbies, all of these things have that trajectory. Make that your prayer. And God will fashion around you deep relationships for which you will be immensely, immensely joyful. I'll close in prayer. Next week we'll look at, at how Paul prays. Here, here his prayer is, I'm thankful. And then he's going to offer a prayer for the Philippians. And we'll talk about that. How, what does it look like to pray for those who are immensely joyful for Father God, I thank you. I thank you that you are merciful. I thank you that you that you are a joyful God. How awesome it is that you that you share that with us, that you in your joy in the deep abiding relationship that you have in 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 the Trinity and the fellowship that you have with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that you would see it in your wisdom. And in your grace and in your mercy and in your kindness to share that with your image bearers. Say, I want you to know what this is like. And that through the cross, as our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west, that you would show us what that relationship looks like with you. The barrier would be broken down in our hearts that we would be made new, that stone hearts would be replaced with hearts of flesh, that we would truly live in our relationship with you and that we would also live in our relationship with others. Father, I pray that we would long for the day when our fellowship with you would be complete, the day when Christ would return. It would give us hope. It would give us strength. It would give us confidence that you will perfect in us the good work that you have begun and that you would perfect in others around us the good work that you have begun. And Father, I pray that we would see others and see ourselves as the expression of your love. Father, may that give us a bold humility to live out the gospel amongst the people that you have put in our lives. Thank you for your grace, Father. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.